All right, I think we'll get started. Thank you all for coming here. This is a really great group and I'm excited for our time together. I'm Elisa Watson. Uh, I live in Arizona and have become like thoroughly a desert person. <laughs> and I have just been so cold up here. So I, if I seem a little trembly, I don't think I'm actually nervous to be with you all. It's just cold. Um, which is funny because my husband and I lived up here for a few years and um, I didn't think anything of the weather back then. But um, we lived here from 2002 to 2007. Um, we've been away for a while now, but Hume is always near and dear to our hearts. Our oldest son has worked summer staff here a few times now, and um, as of this year, my husband is on the advisory board, so um, we just love getting to stay connected to Hume, even though we live far away and are separated by time and distance. And so I'm really honored and happy to be here today, and so glad that all of you are joining me here. Um, the talk, hello as I said, is called Creativity Through Constraints. Uh, and we'll start by looking at this quote from Plato. Our need will be the real creator, Plato said. Would you identify need as being a creative force? Isn't our instinct to think that creativity flows from a place of abundance when we are generally unburdened by stress, hardship, or financial woes? Don't I have to be full in order to have something to give? Don't I need to feel unfettered in order for my ideas to soar? How often do you tell yourself that once you get all your ducks in a row, that's when you'll start devoting yourself more wholeheartedly to your creative tasks? When we're in need, we feel weak, helpless, or empty, and these things seem to be the opposite of creativity. Creativity isn't weak, it's a force to be reckoned with. It isn't helpless, it's helpful. Creativity isn't empty, it's full and boisterous and colorful. Need feels so thin and dark and tired, right? Then again, need isn't just about physical or financial or relational deprivation. Need is also about problems that require solutions. So while it may seem logical to view need as an odd starting point for creativity, if you're sitting here today, I'm guessing you've probably already discovered the counterintuitive truth that when limitations are placed on us, something inside us wakes up and rises to the challenge. Even so, the idea of limitations can make us bristle. Titling this talk, Creativity Through Constraints, could have been a bad move, given that creative types, such as those who choose to attend a creative conference, uh, tend to love their freedom more than their constraints. So let's start by talking about this word. How do you feel about the word constraint? I'm guessing that most of you, at least initially, have kind of a knee-jerk negative response to the word. Surrounded by a culture that wants to remove constraints from virtually every human behavior, the word can have some oppressive connotations to our modern minds. So tell me, what are some of the words that come to your mind when you hear the word constraint? Trapped. Trapped? Uh, lazy. Lazy. Limited. Tied up. Tied up. Swallowed. Swallowed. Swaddled. 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 Yes. Yes. Boundaries. Held back. Held back. 
Good. When you look at different dictionaries, you'll find a number of different ways of approaching this word. You'll see things like limitation or restriction, the state of being checked, restricted, or compelled to avoid or perform some action, repression of one's own feelings, behavior, or actions. And all of these have primarily negative connotations. Um, However, this definition in the Cambridge Dictionary comes a little closer to how I mean it. And as we'll see in a few moments, this isn't just how I mean it. This is an idea that has been well studied and documented. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, a constraint is something that controls what you do by keeping you within particular limits. And I know we don't like the thought of being controlled, so for the sake of today's conversation, I'm going, to ch I'm going to change controls to guides. So now this is Cambridge and Lisa Watson. That's <laughs> our definition. Something that guides what you do by keeping you within particular limits. Though constraints impose limitations, that's not the same thing as being oppressed. Oppression is defined as a cruel or unjust exercise of authority or power. Constraints could be applied in a cruel way, but that's not part of their definition. Constraints are merely limitations, and I'm here to argue that, generally speaking, limitations lead to greater creativity and even freedom, not less. Now is a good time to remind ourselves that scripture is full of constraints on our behavior and attitudes. In the following verses, I want you to mentally take note of the constraining word or phrase in each. Matthew 11:29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What's the constraining word? Yoke. An actual yoke is, is literally a constraint on the backs of the animals on which it's placed, and it's a metaphorical constraint on our hearts. However, notice that there is also a promise included in this verse. You will find rest for your souls. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's several constraining phrases in here. What do you see? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Lose your life. <laughs> That's a constraint. Um, Again, there's a promise in here, too, though, that you will find life and that you'll have fellowship with Jesus. Galatians 5, 24 through 25 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We are crucifying the flesh in this verse, and we're keeping in step with the Spirit. That's even visually a constraining word, to walk in step. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we have the constraint to do nothing from selfish ambition and to look to the needs of others. God's word is full of constraints, but listen to Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found. God's words, God's law, God's rules, God's constraints. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. <coughs> God intends the constraints found in Scripture not for our oppression, but for our joy and nourishment and flourishing. 
Listen now to these verses from Psalm 19, and I want you to scribble two quick columns on your paper. It looks like most of you brought notes. In case you didn't, we've got stacks of paper at the end of each table. If you're up in the chairs, feel free to grab that if you need to. There's some extra pens, too. Um, this isn't getting turned in. It's just two columns. Um, in one of the columns, I want you to take note of the words and phrases that have to do with constraints. And in the other column, I want you to list the positive words and phrases that the psalmist associates with those constraints. So I'm going to read it. It will also be up on the screen. It is Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Uh, raise your hand and tell me what are some of the constraining words that we see in these verses. More to be desired. Law. We're going to put that on the probably on the the positive side. What was that? Law. law. Yes. Law. Testimony. Testimony. Law. Come out. In fact, they line up real nicely <laughs> in each line, right? Right on top of the other. We've got law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, rules. These are all references to constraints that God has for us. And then, what are some of the Phrases that the psalmist uses to associate reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. Enlightening. And what is the promise at, in that paragraph? Not the promise, but the, the blessing at the end. It's great, to, reward. great reward. And it's to his his laws to be desired more than what? Gold. So there's value, there's worth here, It's um, and there's great reward in his constraints. Um, we don't flourish in spite of our constraints, but because of them. That's how God designed it. We are more likely to thrive physically, spiritually, relationally, and emotionally when we live by God's constraints on us. If God has designed the world in such a way that limitations lead to flourishing, we can expect to see that reality applied in many areas of our lives. I'm going to rattle off a list that I brainstormed back when I was first preparing this talk. And while I read these things, you can be thinking about some further examples. Um, everything from our walk with the Lord and ways that constraints allows that to flourish to some of the less overtly spiritual aspects of our lives, beginning with the things having to do with our walk with the Lord. When we obey God's constraint that we tell the truth, we relate to one another freely and trustingly. When people abide by the constraint not to commit murder or theft, we live in safety. When we treat our bodies with respect as God's temple, eating and resting well, we enjoy good health. When we remember to keep the Sabbath, we feel physically and spiritually refreshed. When we discipline ourselves to grow in wisdom and godliness, we become the kind of people who are sought out and trusted by others. Being a slave to Christ makes us free from sin. And then moving into some of the more just practical 
aspects of life in this world. The rules of the road allow us to drive freely. Recognizing my limitations allows me to make choices freely. Children thrive and play freely when they have boundaries and discipline. A lot of this list for anyone who's at Eric's talk this morning about play, there's gonna be a lot of overlap here. Um, runners who train can run freely. Athletes who train can play freely. Ballet dancers who train can dance freely. Artists who study and have the right tools can paint freely. Knowing the rules of a game allow you to strategize freely. Having a budget allows you to spend freely. Having a schedule allows you to say yes or no freely. Plants require specific things to grow. They are constrained by their need for soil, water, oxygen, and sunshine. And when they have those things, they are very, very beautiful. Johnny Erickson Tata, whose autobiography I recently read, um, although you many of you probably know her story, she was paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and she learned to draw by holding a pencil or a piece of charcoal or other drawing utensil in her mouth. She drew beautiful pictures with a pencil in her mouth. Um, and it launched an incredible ministry for her. She was physically constrained in every way possible. And yet there was this beautiful creativity that came out of her. I mentioned in my little plug this morning, Iron Chef, Iron Chef and Chopped. And when you limit um, the constraints on ingredients, you come up with some interesting dishes. So tell me some other areas of life where you see this to be true, either in general principles like I started out with or specific examples like Johnny Erickson Tata. Examples you know of where there was a significant constraint that led to some kind of inspired creativity. Streets and roads. Streets and roads. Traffic signals and lines and that's for a good one. Yeah. Which creates freedom on the roads? We hope so. We hope so. Yes. Which accomplishes what? Mm -hmm. Flourishing of the plants. We'll be thinking about that, and if you think of them as we go, feel free to interject them. As we move from talking about constraints, which lead to flourishing, more specifically into constraints leading to creativity, let's first look at these constraints God placed on his own act of creation. I'm going to read aloud from Job 38, and as I read, take note of words and phrases that have to do with limitations. You don't have to catch them all. Um, if you have a Bible or Bible app and want to look at it, you can, or you can just listen as I read and jot down some of the constraining words that you hear. And remember, this is God's account to Job of what happened in creation. Um, and last night we looked at Job 42 and um, Job's response to this, so that that's kind of neat too. We've already seen the praise that this um, drew out of Job after God has this conversation with him. Now we're looking um, at the start of that conversation where God comes to Job and says, let me tell you about the creation of the world, um, which I was there for and you are not. Beginning in verse 4 of Job 38. And again, you're listening for the constraining or limiting words that God uses to describe his acts of creation. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, 
and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt? That takes us through verse 25. What are some of the words of constraint that you've heard here in Job 38? Pardon? Swaddle. Swaddle. <laughs> yep. Boundaries, bars, doors. Boundaries, bars, doors. Pardon? Measurements. Measurements. Cornerstone. Cornerstone, yes. Gates. Gates. Limits. Bars. Bars and doors. Yep. Storehouses. Storehouses, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, several references to ways and paths. Garments. <laughs> Clothes are constrained. Good. The, create, the greatest creative act of all time, when God called the whole world into existence, is described here largely by its limitations. And yet, even as those lines are drawn, verse 7 says, The morning stars sing, and the sons of God shout for joy. And what is God's own pronouncement on his act of creation in Genesis 1.31? God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The earth and its geography and seasons have beauty and purpose because of the God-ordained boundaries placed upon them. It would be chaos without those, and artists should not make the mistake, as we sometimes do, of confusing chaos with creativity. We've seen that in both God's creation and in his moral order, there are rules and limitations, and there are blessings that come from those. Not just blessings, but flourishing, and not just flourishing, but ingenuity. The modern equivalent of that Plato quote, our need will be the real creator, is, of course, necessity is the mother of invention. This is a phrase we say often because, practically speaking, we know that to be true. Where there is abundance, there is intellectual laziness, but with deprivation comes ingenuity. Psychologists theorize that there is an optimum balance between focus, freedom, and resources in the creative process. I'm reading now from a website called The Beautiful Truth in an article titled, How Can Constraints Enhance Creativity? In a research project conducted in 2018, psychologists reviewed 145 empirical studies and found that the relationship between creativity and constraints formed a U-shaped curve. While too many constraints can be stifling, too few cause complacency. When there are too few constraints, individuals follow the path of least resistance. They go for the most intuitive idea that comes to mind rather than investing in the development of better ideas. 
constraints, the researchers write, provide focus and a creative challenge that motivates people to search for and connect information from different sources. One of my favorite examples of constraints fostering creativity comes from another study, which you can read about in lots of places, but um, I pulled these quotes from a website called Raised Good in an article titled, The Fewer Toys Children Have, The More They Play. Two decades ago, a German project called Der Spielzeugfreie Kindergarten, which means the nursery without toys, wanted to see what would happen if they took toys away from kindergartens. And in German, kindergarten literally means garden of children, and this is more a reference to like preschool than what we think of as kindergarten. All toys from participating classrooms were removed for three months. A video of the children was taken each day. On the first day, the children appeared confused and bored as they peered apprehensively around their big, empty classroom. But by the second day, the kids were playing with chairs and blankets, making dens by draping blankets over tables and weighing them down with shoes. Soon, they started running around the room, chatting and laughing excitedly. By the end of the third month, they were engaged in wildly imaginative play, able to concentrate better and communicate more effectively. The rest of that study is fascinating to read about, but I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail of children's psychology. What's interesting here is that as the children's access to toys is limited, their creativity grew. Creativity doesn't come in the midst of leisure and inactivity and excess. It comes when there's a problem to solve. When children complain of being bored, it's not because they have too few options, but because they have too many. In another article at Forbes about the same topic, artist Brandon Rodriguez is quoted saying, constraints aren't the boundaries of creativity, but the foundation of it. So how do we apply this to our creativity? And especially to writing, this is listed as a writing workshop, although I think these ideas are like widely applicable to all forms of creative expression. Um, so I don't know if you came specifically for writing or if you came because of other areas of creative interest. Um, we're gonna do a couple of little activities here that have to do with writing, but um, like, is there anyone here who's like, no, I'm a visual artist, a painter or a drawer? You hear? Okay, so if, if you don't really think of yourself as a writer, but you're just interested in this concept, um, I would say still challenge yourself to do this writing challenge. If you really want to draw something instead, we can, we can talk about that too. Um, I'm going to put on the screen, we're going to do a couple of different prompts. Um, for the first one, for the next few minutes, I want you to write literally anything you want. Anything in the whole wide world, that thing you've been itching to say, now is the time to say it. Um, the only thing is that I want you to make it clear and interesting. And we're going to take a few minutes. I'm not going to say how many minutes, but I'm going to keep my eye on the time. And that, oh, if you want to draw instead, I would give you the same prompt. Just draw something. Whatever you've been wanting to draw, now is the time to draw it. So write something, draw something for just a few minutes, and that starts right now. I should have gotten some music to play. I'll sing for you. <laughs> you don't want that.
Okay. Pencils down. All right, I don't want you to say anything yet about how that went, but I want you to keep it in mind to discuss in a few minutes. We're going to do a couple other things first, and we're going to start by watching this quick clip from a movie, which is just about a minute and a half, maybe two minutes long. I don't know about you, but for me, this scene is deeply relatable. The idea of being given total freedom with what to write sounds good, but I have learned the paralysis that comes from staring at a blank page with no direction. Um, and so now, for the next few minutes, uh, we're going to do a second prompt, and you've probably guessed it's going to be a lot more specific. Our first prompt was write whatever you want. Um, I'm going to put two prompts up on the screen right now. You can choose from the two of them. Um, they each have several specifics. I would have given even more specifics, but the time limit that we have right now is a constraint in and of itself. So, um, and obviously there's no pressure here to finish anything. You're not turning it in. Um, I just want to see how it goes. I'll give you the same amount of time. Um, and you can choose from one of two prompts. Either write down everything you know about dogs in narrative form, not like listing facts, but as though you're telling a story. Um, everything you know about dogs and give your conclusion as to whether or not it's worthwhile to have a dog. Or think about the last meal you ate, which was probably lunch over at the dining hall. Write a glowing review using wildly vivid detail as though you're writing for a local paper. So you can pick one of those prompts and we'll use the same amount of time. And we will start that now. And I should have that music from the scene playing in the background. Sadly don't. OK. 
Okay, we'll stop right there. And I, I did this challenge to myself, and this was like an infuriatingly short amount of time when I was doing it. I don't know how you guys felt, but I didn't want to let our time in silence together just linger forever. So we're keeping it short for the sake of this session. Um, I really want to hear from you guys about both of these writing prompts, but um, I'd like to start by taking a few minutes. If you're at a table, um, I want you to talk to the people around you. If you're sitting in the chairs, you can you know, sort of talk to those who are sitting immediately around you. Um, and I, I want you to talk to each other about uh, whether the first prompt or the second prompt was easier for you and why. And um, you know, if, if you're willing to share a little bit of what you wrote with one another, and then we'll come back together in just a few minutes and, and talk about it all together. All right, let's bring it back here now. I would love to hear about your experiences with these two prompts and any insights you may have gained from talking around the table. So um, first, who found the second set of prompts easier than the first prompt? That wasn't actually as many people as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but that's okay. Who found the first one easier? For those of you who found the first one easier, um, did you already have something in mind that you actually have sort of been itching to write about? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so, like, hypothetically, if that thought hadn't been in your mind already, the thing you were wanting to write about, the the idea of the blank page, like, does that feel familiar, that sense of, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this page in front of me? That total freedom sounds good, but it's hard to not have direction, right? Um, the existence of a constraint gives you a sense of direction. Um, what did you discover as you shared with each other at your tables? Like, did you tend to write similar things? Did you take it in kind of wildly different directions from one another? What did you discover? Everybody chose to write about the dog. Really? Interesting. And we all talked about our dogs. <laughs> okay. That's great. Because, yeah, that has come up around the room, too. Like, is it just an informational text, or can it be, like, a story about my own dog? So you guys all went the, I'm telling a story about your own dog. It was my imaginary dog. Okay, good. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Did you all decide it's worthwhile to have a dog? Yes. Interesting. How about the other people? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yes. I actually have a question just going back to when you were asking about how many people found it easier to write about the first thing surprised you. Yeah. I guess if I could ask the question for those who found it easier to write about the first, mm -hmm. how many of you were like, <coughs> Lord, what do I write about? God, do you have something, do you have an idea for me? And if it came to you unusually quick and do you, like for me, I felt like I spoke to him and just said, okay, I don't know what to write about. What, what can I write about? And it came to me very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, this conversation will play out differently in a room full of people who are already very creatively motivated and who love the Lord. <laughs> it's going to be different than, like, in a totally different context. That's a good question. What did you guys discover at your table? Did you all write about the same? You didn't get all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah there was a lot really of li- lively conversation. A lot of variety going on over here. Yes? Yeah. So even where the, the same topic was written about, it went different directions? Yeah? Anybody else want to share about their group conversation? I think for us, with the most of us wrote about the dog. One mm-hmm. of them was a little bit more personal experience, and the other two were just kind of more broad mm-hmm. on generalization. And what really has been about the lunch that I saw, I'm like, I'd go back and eat lunch right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the review was glowing. Yes, it was great. Good. <laughs> that was the one I enjoyed the most. I went through both prompts myself and, uh, earlier, and yeah, that was the one I enjoyed reading. So, um, the thing about adding constraints to your writing is that there's an element in which it enhances your own creativity, but there's sort of a collaborative aspect to it as well, Um, and seeing what other people do with the same idea can be a really educational experience. Um, A while back, and if any of you were at my talk last year, I know I referenced this then too, but I was part of a writing group. Emily Marshner, who runs this conference, was part of that group with me as well. And um, there were a few of us who, once a week, we would get an email with a prompt in it and a time limit. And at some point during the day, we would each do it. None of us lived together, and so um, we would just do them on our own using the honor system that we were abiding by the time frame that was given. Um, And we would upload them to a shared Google Doc, and so we could comment on them and give encouragement and feedback, and it it was really, really fun. And part of what was fun was that we all got the same prompt, we all got the same time limit, and sometimes there was overlap in what we wrote, and sometimes we went just like vastly different directions with it. And so that was both entertaining and like really helpful as a writer to see what could be done with a certain kind of prompt, even when the prompts seemed narrow and felt like we should maybe all kind of be doing the same thing. We're different people, and so we did different things with it, and so... It was a good challenge for me personally, but also an edifying experience to share with other people. Um, has anybody heard of the spam haikus? Wow, what is that? <laughs> there was um, a guy at MIT, his name is John Cho, and he started this in 1995 and ran it, he finally closed it in 2002. I have no idea how this thing picked up the traction that it did, um, but he put out this challenge to write a haiku about spam. And if you don't know, a haiku is already an extremely constrained thing to write. It's three lines long, 17 syllables total, five syllables, seven syllables on the second line, five syllables on the third line. And it's supposed to include a reference to nature. So a haiku in and of itself is an extremely constrained thing to write. And now you're writing it about spam, which just like how much is there to say about spam? But in those years between 1995, when he opened this challenge and when he finally closed it in 2002, if you go to his archive now, and actually I think he published these in a, an actual like paperback book, um, there were over 19,000 submissions. And if you go through them, like most of them are pretty terrible. It's not like these are like amazing pieces of poetry that are going to change your life. But the fact that this very narrow prompt drew in 19,000 submissions. Like, that that just blows my mind. That seems crazy. Um, and is an example of a very tight constraint creating an unusual amount of creativity in people. Um, 
I have had the privilege of being part of a team at our church that writes Advent devotionals at Christmas time. And uh, there's several of us who are writing, and so we're given lots of constraints for that, um, partly because they want to maintain a similar tone throughout, um, a tone that is both consistent and respectful to the subject matter, of course. Um, and then it's also laid out in a, in a booklet, so it has to follow a particular format so that each, each page is you know, consistent. You don't want one writer who's writing pages and pages of devotion and somebody else who only has a paragraph. So um, here are just a few of the constraints that we are given when we write these devotionals. The title has to be engaging and only two to six words. The reflection and journal portion has to be no longer than 200 words. And we end with a prayer that is 10 to 14 lines with no more than 16 syllables per line. And that, when I first started doing that, it felt like a frustrating constraint because how do you say words, you know, two, 200 words for a devotional, like that, that's short. And how do you say anything that matters in 200 words? Um, but it ended up being really kind of a cool experience because it forced me to think through like what words are actually necessary to say here to communicate these truths in a way that you know means something to adults and is understandable to children. And I, I mean, it took a lot of discipline, <laughs> excuse me, a lot of discipline to uh, keep the devotional into just that very small amount of words. And I don't think that everything you ever write about faith should be 200 words or less. Um, but I think in a particular circumstance like this one, it was actually a very beneficial experience um, for me as a writer, anyhow, and hopefully for those who read it. Who here is familiar with Inktober? Who's doing Inktober? Follow it. Try. Try the same. Um, I kept it up for the first half of the month and then realized I was spending too much time on Inktober and not enough time on this or, you know, paying attention to my children. So I, <laughs> I stopped halfway through the month. But if you don't know, Inktober is a challenge that happens every October. It happens online, primarily on Instagram, and the organizers publish a list of prompts at the beginning of the month. And there is one word for each day. Um, just just simple, normal words, map, spider, golden, just a word for each day. And then people who are interested in participating will draw a picture that represents that word, and they'll tag the account on Instagram so that then you can go and see like everybody who posted about a map that day. You can see what people drew. And there are some incredible artists out there. And um, I mean, the, the artistry alone is a good example of this, that you get this, this one word and you see it play out visually in so many different ways. I mean, it's really cool. Even if you aren't an artist or don't want to participate, you should go find their Instagram account because it's, it's really cool to look at. And I've used it as an excuse to write because my drawing skills are very average at best. Um, but it, it has created sort of a fun challenge for me to take that word and think, what's a story I can tell about this word? Um, and also, what is a picture that I can feasibly draw with my limited skills that can go with the story? And so for, for 15 days this month, I did that. I drew a picture each day and told a story about it. And I could draw a picture any day of the year and tell a story about it. Like, I don't have to wait until some outside person says, today you're going to draw a picture of the word map. I could do that any day of the year. Um, 
But there's something about the constraints involved that are kind of motivating. There's the constraint of the word that's specific to each day, the constraint of my own artistic ability or lack thereof, and the constraint of accountability. Because even though, I mean, it's not anything, like you don't get in trouble <coughs> if you don't do it, but once you start doing it and you know other people who are doing it, you know, you're checking in with each other and saying, what did you do today? And so adding those constraints into it made it a much more fun project than just trying to do that on my own throughout the year. So accountability is another constraint uh, that's valuable to add. Uh, something about this activity for Inktober has just sort of awakened a creativity that I feel too often lies dormant in me. And I don't know if you guys have had similar experiences with challenges like that. Uh, that it is a challenge, but it also ends up being very fun and kind of invigorating. The thing about placing constraints on your writing is that they can get you out of a rut when you're stuck, um, or they can add depth to what you've already written. And again, if you were here last year, I'm sure I referenced this then too, but I just love this book. Anne Lamott wrote a book called Bird by Bird. Has anybody read it? Yes. Um, I, it's part memoir and part writing tutorial, although it's it's less about like rules of grammar and things like that and more about a mindset towards writing. Um, I definitely recommend it, except you do need to be prepared for some salty language and some questionable theology. But as far as a book about writing, it's very good. Um, she is like bursting at the seams with prompts. It's hard work for me to come up with prompts, but when I read this book, they're just flowing out of her constantly. And the whole time I read this book, I would read a few pages and then I would put it down and write. And then I would read a few more pages and then put it down and write. I felt so inspired to write while I was reading this book. I filled up a whole spiral notebook, just responding to a lot of her ideas for prompts. Um, what is it called? It's called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And, uh, <laughs> If you find that you are totally stymied in your writing, you want to start by just writing again because creativity begets creativity. And what I mean by that is that creativity is like any other skill. It improves with practice. The less time you spend in creative endeavors, the harder it can be to get back into them. So even if this has nothing to do with what you're hoping to write, these ideas can simply get you writing again and get those creative juices flowing. So I'm, I'm just going to read a couple examples from her book. And again, these are just to get you writing again if you're feeling kind of stuck. So you might start by writing down every single thing you can remember from your first few years in school. Start with kindergarten. American kindergarten, not German kindergarten. Try to get the words and memories down as they occur to you. Don't worry if what you write is no good because no one's going to see it. Move on to first grade, to second, to third. Who were your teachers, your classmates? What did you wear? Who and what were you jealous of? Now branch out a little. Did your family take vacations during those years? Get these down on paper. Do you remember how much more presentable everyone else's family looked? Do you remember how when you'd be floating around in an inner tube on a river, your own family would have lost the little cap that screws over the airflow valve so every time you got in and out of the inner tube, you'd scratch new welts in your thighs. And how other families never lost the caps? If this doesn't pan out, or if it does, but you finish mining this particular vein, see if focusing on holidays and big events helps you recollect your life as it was. Write down everything you can remember about every birthday or Christmas or Seder or Easter or whatever, every relative who was there. And she goes on like this. 
Um, maybe you think you won't be able to remember all those things. I definitely thought that, but once I started writing, the memories started coming and they kept coming and one memory led to another memory. And where my memory failed, I would call my mom or my sister and ask them about it. So in addition to doing a good writing exercise, it became a fun little trip down memory lane. She also said, no one will see this anyway. And that may or may not be true. But maybe as you write these reflections, you'll find some nugget in them that you actually do want to write. Maybe it will be an exercise just in writing to write, just to challenge yourself and see what you're capable of and watch how you improve and get back in the habit. But you may find certain memories, certain things that matter to you that you realize, oh, I actually, this is what I want to write about. Maybe you're writing fiction, maybe you're writing a memoir or a biography or an about page for yourself or for a client's website. If you're writing about people at all, the following suggestions can be helpful exercises, not because you'll necessarily use all these things exactly in what you're writing, but because they'll give insight into who it is that you're writing about. So um, if you're writing a memoir or biography or piece of fiction and you're wanting to make a character or even a real-life person you're writing about more believable, answer some questions like these. Think about this person that you're writing and ask these kinds of questions about them. Ask yourself how they stand, what they carry in their pockets or purses, what happens in their faces and to their posture when they are thinking or bored or afraid. Whom would they have voted for last time? Why should we care about them anyway? What would be the first thing they stopped doing if they found out they had six months to live? Would they start smoking again? Would they keep flossing? <laughs> or you can take the person you're writing about and place them in a scenario like this. Put them in an elevator with a person that they don't like. Then let the elevator get stuck. Nothing like a supercharged atmosphere to get things going. No, they both will have a lot to say, but they will also be afraid that they won't be able to control what they say. They will be afraid of an explosion. Maybe there will be one. Maybe there won't. What you're doing in these exercises is learning about your character, not because you'll necessarily take all of these things and apply them to directly what it, what it is that you're writing, but you're learning more about them by putting them in these scenarios and asking these questions about them. Maybe you're writing something more boring or at least less dramatic on its surface than an explosive elevator conversation. Maybe you're writing an informational text and you're struggling with how to make it interesting. Try writing it as a letter to a friend or a loved one, telling them about this information as though it's really interesting and important to you and see the way your tone changes. Then see if you can apply that tone shift to whatever it is you are writing. When you're stuck when you're writing, turning it around a little bit like that, changing the method that you're using to write it or doing a little side exercise about the ideas or people involved can draw out some more insight into what it is that you're writing about versus just slogging along in the same vein if you're feeling stuck. Sometimes constraints are imposed on us, like the Advent devotional that I'm doing. I didn't have a choice on those constraints. I was told you must write within these parameters. And when that happens, we have to figure out what to do with those, how to think creatively about it, how to think outside of the box and be intentional with what we say. But sometimes we get to impose our own constraints to see what emerges, and that's what she's encouraging all throughout this book. Some of the byproducts, the positive byproducts of self-imposed constraints, like the ones we're talking about, are 
these. Uh, creativity, as I said, begets creativity. Sometimes it's good just to get writing again or painting or whatever the creative expression is to just do it so that you keep doing it. Another positive byproduct is that the tighter the constraints, the more detail your brain generates. And this is related, uh, Ashley, right? We were talking, she was, can I share this? She's a ballet dancer and we were talking about how ballet has such specific constraints and yet there's so much beauty in ballet dancing. And um, do you mind sharing what you said about more, more constraints? Uh, yes, so um, I'm trying to remember back. <laughs> no, but like the more, the more rules there are, the, it's almost like a, it becomes a continuous variable where you can, you can get more and more specific in how you do something with your hand or the way you turn your head. And even though the space is very small, you can blow it up and make it very, very creative mm. in a small space. Which adds to the beauty. Right. It's, it adds to the creativity and to the beauty. I love that. When she said that, I was like, that's exactly <laughs> it. Like, the more constraints we add, the more it kind of forces us to be creative. Yes. Which just draws out new angles on things. And so it's one thing for, to say, write about anything. Or to say, write about a human. Or to write about a human man. But if I say write about a mild-mannered, 50-something married man who lives in northern Minnesota and runs a local bait-and-tackle store, well, now you're going to be picturing his hair and his skin and his clothes and his demeanor and his accent and his shoes and his hands and his posture as he talks to customers and his tone of voice. And now you can see him, right? And if, if you're asked to write about this man, you have, you have something to, to work with, whereas if I just said write about a person... That is directionless, but if I give you these parameters, now you're seeing details. And the more specific your characters and scenarios are, the more interesting and relatable your writing becomes. Last year in a workshop, we talked about that idea um, that the more specific something is, the more universal it is. It's one thing to say, oh, there's just this, this person, and it's like, oh, okay, we all... We all know people, but that doesn't feel very relatable. But when you describe a person like this, you might not know a man who exactly fits this description, but as you start reading about this character, you know somebody who's like him, or you see elements of yourself in him. So the more that idea that the more specific you are, the more universal it is to people um, is a good principle, which I should have added to this list. But it fits with this idea. The tighter the constraints, the more detail your brain will generate. And another byproduct is that usable ideas may emerge. Like we said, um, Anne Lamott was saying write just to write, even if nobody ever sees it. But then she contradicts herself later because she has a portion where she talks about school lunches. And she's writing everything she can remember about school lunches. The smell of the cafeteria and the bologna sandwiches and the sound of the brown paper bags and where the cool kids sat and where the not cool kids sat. And as she was writing, she suddenly remembered a boy who used to sit by the fence with his trombone and his brown sack lunch. And she'd forgotten all about him until she was writing, doing these exercises about school lunches, and she ended up using that boy in another story that she was writing. And so these kinds of exercises may draw out uh, ideas that you can use on whatever it is you're hoping to write. Um, as we're, we're drawing to a close, um, last year, people 
I, I heard positive feedback about prompts, and you always know you're in a room full of writers when people get excited about prompts, <laughs> and when you're not in a room full of writers because they don't get excited about prompts. Um, so here are some ideas, um, some exercises and constraints. Um, and I mean, it's just, this is a haphazard smattering of ideas, but fun ones, I think, and useful. Uh, write an alliterative story. Um, alliteration is using words that all begin with the same letter. Years ago, my sister and I <laughs> did this. We posted back and forth on each other's Facebook walls, and we took turns. So I sent her a story where everything started with an A, and then she sent me a story where everything started with a B. And we went back and forth, and we got through the letter K. We never finished. I don't know why. We kind of fizzled out on it. But it was so fun, and I recently went and found them. And I mean, they're totally ridiculous, but that is a good brain exercise. And it really forces you to expand your vocabulary, too. We allowed thesauruses, <laughs> and I made good use of one. Um, so that's a very constrained exercise to tell a story that's all alliterative. Um, write a sonnet about squirrels. I only included that here because I included it in the description for the class. <laughs> if you saw that in the little blurb in the booklet, I myself. I'm not a sonnet writer. Poetry is not my skill set. Um, so I probably should challenge myself to do this. Write a scene and then rewrite it from a different character's perspective to see what you're missing. There's a lot that can be gained from forcing yourself to see something from another person's perspective. And often when we're writing, we're writing from a perspective that we sort of agree with. And so this can be a good challenge, not just for our writing, but for our thinking. <clears throat> write a prayer or liturgy for writers in the same mode that I described earlier with our Advent writing. Keep it to 10 to 14 lines with no more than 16 syllables per line. I do like writing liturgies. They're similar to poetry, but there's a little more, I don't know, freedom in them. Uh, Write an emotionally evocative scene without using emotional language. We might have talked about this idea last year. This is one of my favorite prompts, and it, I didn't originate this one. It's another writer named Jonathan Rogers. I heard it from him, and um, I just think it's a cool idea. And since some of these I don't do, like the sonnet about squirrels, and since I've asked you guys to do a lot of writing, um, I'm going to share one that I wrote uh, an emotionally evocative scene that doesn't use emotional language. Um, I recently was at a retreat. I was hosting a creative retreat for a group of women. Um, and there were photographers there and writers and painters and musicians. Those were kind of the four types of creative folks who were there. And we spent a lot of time working on our own, but we also spent a little bit of time collaborating together and encouraging each other. And one of my favorite things we did was that we had the photographers bring some of their favorite photography, pieces of photography that they'd done, and then the rest of us responded in some way. So like one photographer brought a picture of the ocean and a gal there who was a painter kind of painted her own version of it. And it was cool to see the ways we like reinterpreted one another's work. And so um, one of the photographers brought this picture, and I was so struck by it that freckles really captivated me. And I don't know if you can tell when you're looking. I, I have the actual photograph here, too. It might be a little clearer. Um, but the, his eyes are so clear. And I, I confirmed this with her, that I was seeing this correctly. 
um, she is reflected in his eye taking his picture. And so it's like she's a presence in this photo, even though it's very much about him. And so I was really struck by the artistry of this photo, but there was also something about it that sort of reminded me of one of my sons. And um, I have four sons. They are 19, 16, 11, and 8. And, you know, the teenagers are definitely growing up. And there's, I'm feeling a little sentimental about that. And so even though this is a picture of her son, I wrote about my son. And it's not very long. I will read it to you. The boy gazes out the window, the sun illuminating the freckles it had so generously bestowed on him. His large, intelligent eyes are like a pool of water, which, reflecting the world beyond, conceal its depths. A casual observer would see an adolescent boy staring vaguely into space, never knowing the thoughts of God and philosophy and science and song which are dancing through his vibrant, well-ordered mind. He wasn't born with freckles. They appeared, bit by bit, throughout his childhood, and reached their riotous conclusion in his teens, right when the other vestiges of childhood were falling away. It was as though every new milestone gained and every piece of childhood lost appeared on his face, the constellated freckles telling the story of his life, such as it was thus far. The freckles won't last forever. As they had appeared bit by bit, so they will dissolve, fading into the rugged complexion of maturity. The boy isn't troubled much by the presence or absence of freckles, but he is troubled by the growing up that will cause their eventual disappearance. The boy loved being a child, and even as he dreams of the future, he clings to the past. Those large, intelligent eyes are wise beyond their years, and they see that there is pain as well as pleasure in the world. And that vibrant, well-ordered mind spends much of its time bracing itself for the demands of the wide world beyond this window. For now, though, he straddles the in-between, still enjoying the pleasures of innocence while beginning to experience the pains of maturity, his face bearing the freckles of a childhood ending, but not yet the ruggedness of arrival into manhood. He stares out the window and contemplates these things. If you look closely, you can catch a glimpse of a woman reflected in his luminous eyes. It is his mother, and the boy doesn't notice her, but she watches him. She is not a casual observer, but an attentive one. She sees the intelligence, the vibrance. She sees the pull towards adulthood and the longing for childhood. She sees the freckles, and she remembers her own. Her heart breaks just a little, and if you look in her eyes, there is love reflected there. Now, I broke the rules a little because I said things like her heart breaks a little, which is emotionally evocative, but... Um, what I was trying to do was to not use emotionally fraught language. Um, I, I could have written something along the lines of growing up is hard and it's bittersweet for me as a mom to watch my boys grow up and lose their innocence and it just makes me cry to remember them as wee little precious babies and to know that their lives become full of pain and confusion and questions as they mature and gosh, I miss them being little and I kind of miss me being little too and isn't the pain of growing up so hard for all of us? And that would be me like using emotionally fraught language to try to draw you in like I'm feeling emotional about my kids growing up and I want you to feel emotional too but what I tried to do here was to follow this prompt and not use that kind of language to speak in a more matter-of-fact tone but to still try to kind of draw out that sense of bittersweetness that we feel both in our own growing up and in watching it happen to our children 
Um, so that's an example of what I mean when I say to write an emotionally evocative scene without using emotional language. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah? Um, I would love to spend a little time here at the end with these prompts up on the screen and give you guys a chance to either start working on one or to talk to those around you um, about the prompts and kind of like get insight from one another. I really, really enjoyed overhearing all of the conversations that were happening after those first two prompts um, and the way you all engaged with one another. Um, but before we switch to that, um, because we're going on 3 o'clock now and the next one starts at 3.30 and um, my goal is to wrap up around 3 so that you have time to talk to one another or to me or to take a bathroom break or whatever before the next session starts at 3.30. Um, but I, are, there, are there any other insights you guys have had about your own creative endeavors or questions that you have? Yeah. Um, so you had up there earlier, chaos does not equal creativity. Yeah. Um, in the ancient uh, imagination mindset, um, there was no such thing as nothing. So mm. our modern view of creation, God created heavens and the earth out of nothing, ex nihilo. Um, they had no concept of that. What yeah. they had a concept of was chaos and order. order. So when God created, he brought chaos to order. Yes. So that's what creation, that's what creation was. In their minds. So, by definition of that, literally you cannot have chaos and creativity. How you can have messiness and you can constrain the chaos, which he does. He has there's a dragon in Genesis 1, no demons in that. Um, but you constrain it still. But yes. you cannot have, you literally cannot have creativity and chaos. Yes, thank you so much for that insight. Have you read Timothy Keller's thoughts on creativity? Um, Okay, he, he addresses that a little bit. And C.S. Lewis, you know, he wrote the Space Trilogy, but he never called it the Space Trilogy. He didn't like the word space because he saw, he saw the heavens as being full, not empty, and um, is drawing from some of that, those same ideas. Yeah. Madeline Langle has similar... Yes, she does. And Madeline Langle's another good one. She's written a few books on writing. I just wrote Walking on Water. That's another one I recommend. Thank you for that. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. Well, um, thank you again for coming. I've really enjoyed the time, and I'm going to be hanging out here. And like, like I said, I would, I would love if I'm not going to make you stay at your tables and write <laughs> right now. You are adults, and you have freedom to go where you please. Um, but if you want to stay and write um, or talk to one another about your writing, that would be wonderful too. Thank you. Thank you.